All right. Well, church family, we're going to dive right off the deep end because I do want to try to, I know a few of you inquire, you got to duck out a few minutes early. I want to get you as much as possible before you do it. So if you got your Bibles, the, by the way, there's no new cheat sheet for tonight. The one that's back there is the one from last week, and it will be the one for next week because we got to finish up that sheet from last week. We're going to do it next week. Tonight, your cheat sheet is just the book of Jude in whatever translation of the Bible you've got, provided it's a good translation. If it's not, then that's not your cheat sheet. That's a danger, and you should throw it away. Um, tell me, we'll get, you, we'll get you a Bible out of the sanctuary. Jude gives background. If I were to say to some of you tonight, uh, we, we come to the end of the night, and I were to say to some of you tonight, now church family, see you, see you next time, same bat time, same bat channel. Some of you in this room, you know where that example's from, and you know exactly what I mean in using it. See you next week, same time, same place. No different. Some of you in the room, you don't really know where maybe that came from, but you can surmise it. You've got enough context to go, oh, I mean, that's a pretty easy one to figure out. Same bat time, same bat channel. Some of you in the room don't have a clue what I'm talking about because you've never seen the 1960s Adam West Batman show that would come on back-to-back -back nights, and I'm talking about it as if I grew up with it. I didn't, but I have it all on DVD, and uh, my dad introduced it to me when I was a kid. So my point with that to say is there are examples all around us like that, that depending on how familiar it is to you, you don't need any more background. It's just a good example to use. That's what Jude does with the nine examples that he pulls from that we walked through Sunday. Our problem is nearly every one of those nine examples, some are easier for us to figure out than others, but none of those nine examples are really familiar to most of us, much less the kind of familiarity that we would not think to ask rabbit trail questions. We'd just go, oh yeah, that's the point. Got it, move on, get you, let's, let's go. So that's why, and because some of these, we're going to take some time tonight to back, walk back through and make sure we really understand what is there. And so remember the context here, uh, chapter or verse 5, Jude's reminding us, he says, remember, you've got access to all this knowledge, you've got everything you need for life and godliness, but remember, I want to remind you about the reality of these infiltrators. I want to remind you about the, the, the real sin of these infiltrators, the real danger they present to you, and, and what their destiny is, and, and that none of this, therefore, should be a surprise or should cause you to panic and buckle at the knees, but should, should instead, and as we're going to look at Sunday, cause you to respond to it in the right biblical, right biblical way. So first example he gives, verse, uh, verse 5, says, reminds you that the Lord after saving a people out of the land of Egypt, subsequently destroyed those who did not believe. Now, that's probably one of the easier ones for us to get. He is referencing there. And actually, let me back up. If, let's say you were to come and read this passage on your own in your daily time with the Lord. I'm going to also tell you how you can figure this out on your own. Hopefully, you have a Bible that's considered a reference Bible. That means you have footnotes. And if you look at there, says the Lord after saving, my Bible says after saving, and there's a little, there's a little number there. And if I, if I find this corresponding footnote, that, that one takes me back to uh, Exodus chapter 12. If I go there, I roundaboutly can find the Old Testament references to these stories using your, using your cross-reference in your Bible. And so I just, as a reminder from last year and just how to, how to read our Bibles, man, you don't have a Bible with a cross-reference, I encourage you to get one. And if you have a cross-reference, always never be afraid to use it because it'll help point you back to what's there. But, but he references what, uh, there's several places throughout Exodus and Numbers and Deuteronomy that, that this, this could be applicable, but the specific one is Numbers chapter 14. Numbers chapter 14, of course, is when the, God has brought that, that first generation of uh, Israelites out of Egypt. They are, they are there on the precipice of entering the promised land. They are awaiting the, the return of the 12 spies. The 12 spies come back. The 12 spies get up and say, guess what? Everything God has told us about the goodness, the beauty, the resources of the land, it is all true and better than we imagined. However, he says, they said, the cities are huge 
and and the the Anakim are there, the who are from the the Rephim. They these giants are there. They inhabit the land, and if we go up there, we're going to get killed. And so God's brought us out here to die. And of course, you got Caleb and Joshua, the other two spies, who say that's an absolute load of of nonsense. Don't you dare listen to that. God's called us to go take His word. And of course, the response then in the story is that's when God decides, you know what, here's what's going to happen. All of you who've not believed my word, you're not allowed in the promised land if you're over 20 years of age. Instead, you're going to go back in the wilderness. I'm going to keep you there for 40 years until all of you die off. And there will be a new generation that will actually take me at my word. Now, remember, this is also on the heels of this, this generation has seen God They've seen the plagues. They've seen the parting of the Red Sea. They've experienced God's forgiveness with the golden calf at Sinai. They've complained to God about no food and water, and God's provided miraculously both manna from heaven and and water from the ground multiple times. They've been in the wilderness. Their clothes haven't worn out. They haven't been attacked by marauders. They have seen the faithfulness and power of their God. They are by no means without excuse when they go, oh, we just don't want to believe. This is the background. Now, interestingly enough, Jude says, you may have missed it. I didn't draw attention to it Sunday. It says that the Lord, which is typically a designation for Jesus. So there's a great reference New Testament writer looking back and saying, hey, look how Jesus was dealing with the people in the Old Testament. Now, if you go read the Old Testament, it doesn't say Jesus, but you see a great example here of why it's always been, we've always understood as believers, Jesus is fully God. So the example is easy. And the example causes us to think two things. One, You realize God, I said it Sunday, God takes himself seriously and he expects his people to believe what he says, how he says it. And when his people choose not to believe what he says, there comes a point where just because they're his people doesn't mean he's just gonna keep persisting with the unbelief. He's gonna deal with it. Now, in context here, this is probably a greater warning to Jude's readers to say there are going to be people who look like the people of God, who know the lingo of the people of God, but who knowingly reject the word of God, what God commands them to do, how God says that he is. They they live in active denial and unbelief. And when it says that the Lord destroyed them, that word destroyed would not be a word to just say he took their lives. It would be the idea that that he brought them into eternal judgment, that they, they are not in heaven. So really, the context, this is talking about people who seem to be God's people, but because of their disbelief are not actually in the people of God, and God does not hesitate to usher in their destruction. It's first example. Second example, it says, "...an angels who did not keep their own domain, but abandoned their proper abode, he has kept in eternal bonds under darkness for judgment of the great day." Now, you will find similarly, if you cross-reference it, Peter, in the book of 2 Peter chapter 2, makes almost word for word a similar statement. In fact, uh, if you really dig into scholars, they think either Jude stole from Peter, or most of them think 2 Peter copied off of Jude. Likely, they're actually both probably pulling uh, from a more of a common tradition that was understood at the time. But regardless of all of that, what is he talking about? What is he referencing? Angels who did not keep their own domain, meaning they had, they had a place where they were to live, where God had given them an authority, a responsibility, and there were boundaries to that place. And somewhere the angels, it says that knowing their place, knowing their authority, there was a group of them that decided to forsake it, that word abandoned, forsake forever, cross that boundary from their proper place to a place that was not theirs. And then in an irony, just as they refused to keep, to guard, to protect, to stay in their place, God has kept them, guarded them, locked them in to eternal bonds under darkness for the judgment of their great day. Now, here's what I say. You don't have to understand all the background to get the point. What's the point? God made angels. He gave angels a place where they are to live, where they are to have authority, where they are to act, where they are to move, where they are. But they left that place. They crossed a boundary they were not meant to cross. And God has not hesitated just because they're, they, they were angels to lock them away into eternal punishment forever. That's the point. There's a boundary that God established. 
Angels crossed it, and even they being these glorious spiritual beings, they don't get a free pass. God deals with it. They are judged. What's the background? Now, here's where if you start doing it can get tricky. And Colin back there is just delighted because it's just this is his kind of stuff. In first century Jewish life, and in some of the apocryphal books, it is the background for this takes you to Genesis 6. So if you want to flip to the polar opposite end of your Bible in almost every way, go with me, Genesis chapter 6. Genesis 6, verse 1 says this, Now it came about when men began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them that the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful, and they took wives for themselves, whomever they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not strive with man forever, because he is also flesh. Nevertheless, his days shall be 120 years. Remember, prior to this are all the lists of the first generations, and you see people living like Methuselah 900 some odd years. Then it says this in verse 4, The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of men, and they, were born, and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, men of renown. In first century Jewish life, and what would have been very likely, we can, it's, it's somewhat of an assumption, but it's a fairly safe assumption based on evidence, would have been the belief of most in the early church, what Genesis 6 is talking about says when the sons of God, and if you go through and look at that phrase in the Old Testament, in fact, you find it in Job. Job, God's talking to Job, and he says, where were you when the sons of God sang my praises as I laid the foundations of the earth? Well, it's very clear in that passage, sons of God cannot be humans because there were no humans when the foundations of the physical universe were being laid. But there were angels. So, could be, and what the early, uh, what, what, what first century Jews, early church uh, believed, is that the sons of God in Genesis 6 were angels who looked and saw the beauty of human women who left their proper dwelling, that is the spiritual realm, who, who came, who appeared like angels, obviously we know have the ability of doing throughout Scripture as a human, and went in, they took these daughters for wives, they engaged in the acts of intercourse and procreated, producing these men of renown, these offspring that were seemingly superhuman, the Nephilim. Okay, that is what Second Temple Judaism, early first century Judaism, that's what they held to, likely what many in the first church would have held to. That is the background for Jude's statement. Now, you say, well, pastor, are you saying that angels left heaven and came down and got together with human women and they produced supernatural offspring? I don't know. Let me give you kind of the bigger background here. There are two main streams of thought. One is, yes, angels left the abode of heaven. They took on some kind of flesh that enabled them to enact in the, in the act of procreation with human women, and they produced supernatural, not super, uh, superhuman, not supernatural, superhuman, uh, human offspring that were larger, stronger, but not, not divine, but just superhuman. Think Hercules, Gilgamesh, kind of those, those legends of old. That is one train of thought, that there are some really godly, God-fearing pastors and scholars who hold to. There is another train of thought if you walk through that text, uh, back in Genesis 6, it says that the sons of God went, to, went in with the women, and then we naturally assume that their offspring are the Nephilim, but if you actually were to really look at it, it actually says that when the sons of God came to the daughters of men, it seems to distinguish the Nephilim as a separate group of people who were living while the sons of God were going into human women, which would imply then that the sons of God the, the, the Nephilim are not necessarily these superhuman offspring. It could imply that the sons of God, one would be the sons of God what, in the book of Genesis, are the righteous line that starts through Seth, 
going and intermarrying with other peoples. The danger of that argument is we, we've not seen any, God hasn't given any commands about who his special people are and, and not to intermarry. With, or at this point, it's just a, all humanity um, filling out the earth like mosquitoes in a swamp. So you've got a variety of deals. You've got um, the challenge of if you go, well, these are angels. Well, what do you do with Jesus's statement when he's asked, if a, if a woman's married to a man and he dies and then she marries the brother and he dies and get down the line and she's married and, and all seven brothers have been married to and died, what do you do? What do you do with who she married to in heaven for eternity? And Jesus makes a statement, in heaven, we're like the angels who do not marry and who are not given in marriage, seeming to imply that there's not, if they're not marrying, they're obviously not procreating. Like there was X amount of angels at the beginning of creation. And if you add up all the angels and all the demons who were angels but fell today, it would still be the same number. They're not multiplying. There's a fixed number. So one of the, the, the negatives of that would be, well, it seems, Jesus seems to ex nay that. I've also heard a compelling case. Jesus just ex nayed the fact that the angels don't procreate. He didn't go on to say that they couldn't take human form and engage in that. I'll give you a third option. Third option would be, is it possible if these angels left their abode, then they would by default be demons. We know demons can take possession of human bodies. And we know from the New Testament, when you see a demon taking possession of a human body, those humans display signs of strength beyond what is normal for a human. Is it possible that human bodies in possession by demons procreated and it gave? It's possible. There's interesting stuff. In fact, if you trace some, if you really want to dig down the rabbit hole here, and I'm not going to take you this far other than mentioning it, which might not be good, but oh well, we're already too far. If you do some real digging into old Near East manuscripts of, of the ancient Middle East, you can go back. Of course, most are probably familiar with the legend of Gilgamesh, the superhuman, the Babylonian superhuman. If you go far back, there are documents that talk about the Nephilim and say that, and these are not tied to the legend, say that one of the greatest of the Nephilim was named Gilgamesh. Could it be that there was some superhuman person named Gilgamesh from whom the legend developed? And where you get some of these legends. It's possible. Again, we're speculating because it's been thousands of years and none of us were there to see it. And you got to pull from different little things. So Pastor, are the sons of God angels? Are they not? Here's what I can tell you. I can make a really convincing case both ways. I can also tell you with certainty, if you want to go and our authority is solely the word of God, I don't know that the word of God gives 100% clarity either direction. What the word is clear about is that some angels saw something that was forbidden from them and they chose as an act of willful violation of God's law to cross that boundary. And God brought judgment on them forever with no shot of redemption. That is what is clear. What is clear when you look at the Nephilim and you follow this into the Old Testament and you see even what I mentioned earlier, we don't want to go up there. The Anakim are there uh, who, who are in the, and all these people tie back to the Nephilim. What is clear is that the Nephilim represent a race of humans, they are not a race of humans, but a group of humans that are in opposition to God's purpose for humanity. That's also clear throughout Scripture. Now, time didn't give us tonight. I didn't prepare tonight to just give you a whole lecture on the Nephilim. We'll have to do that at a separate time. But I'm just trying to expose you to the background here so you understand this is what, when they would have read this and whatever church Jude writes this to and they're reading this, everybody's mind would have gone back to Genesis 6 with an understanding that, that's, that the sons of God were angels who crossed over, who cohabited uh, sexually with human women and produced these superhuman offspring who were all wiped out in the flood. Is that the right interpretation of Genesis 6? I'm not trying to be wishy-washy or ambiguous. I can paint a really good case either way. Well, pa pastor, what do you think? Depends on what day of the week it is. And that, again, we can come back to that one, one night, but that's, that's sufficient for walking through tonight when the main point is that these angels who crossed over, they didn't win. By the way, if you go around the world today, there are no more Nephilim living. They've all been wiped out. Why? Because they didn't win, well, flood, but, but because God wins. His will wins, not the will of man or even the will of the demonic.
Then he says, just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them, since they in the same way as these indulged in gross immorality and went after strange flesh are exhibited as an example in undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. Now, Sodom and Gomorrah, that story comes out in Genesis 19. Some of you, it's probably a story that if you've grown up in church, you've at least got some familiarity. It's Sodom and Gomorrah is routinely tossed out in scripture as the example of cities of just mass uh, sexual perversion of sexual immorality, and not just of sexual morality. They're viewed as prideful, as arrogant, as inhospitable. There's all sorts of things that are there. If you go back to Genesis 19, God tells Abraham, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to obliterate Sodom and Gomorrah because of their wickedness. Of course, Abraham goes to that conversation with God. Well, what about if there's a hundred righteous people there? Well, I'll spare it if there's a hundred. What about if there's 10? Well, I'll spare it if there's, what about if there's, Abraham, what are you asking? That's where my, that's where Lot lives. And God says, I will, I will send messengers to Lot to get Lot out. And if he leaves, I'll save him. But the rest of the city is going to, their, their time, their sin has filled up. So he sends angelic messengers who in their appearance to earthly eyes look like beautiful, stunning men. They go to Lot's house and the men of Sodom and Gomorrah come to the house demanding that Lot hand over those two those two, in their eyes, male visitors, because they want to have sexual relations with those visitors. So this is why historically, historically in the English language, we've not always used the word homosexuality to describe same-sex wanting same-sex for sexual relations. We've used the term historically. If you go back and read older documents, it's called sodomy. Why? is the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah. Now, if you do the digging here, you will find some scholars who say, well, that's not, when it says that homosexuality is not the only sin of Sodom and Gomorrah, and that's true. Let's be really clear. Sodom and Gomorrah were wicked in every kind of way you can see sin be wicked. It wasn't just homosexuality. That was not the only thing. They were proud. They were arrogant. They were heterosexually immoral. They were gossiping. They were gluttonous. They were murderous. They were, name it all, it's there. Go down Romans, the end of Romans 1, all those sins were present in Sodom and Gomorrah for God to deal with Sodom and Gomorrah. So we don't want to cherry pick one sin as, as it. What, the example here though, the reason it comes out here is because he says, just as these angels who have an angelic flesh, remember the background, they have an angelic flesh, Genesis 6, if they went to humans who have a human flesh, something that is forbidden, two kinds of flesh that are not to meet. It says, in the same way, Sodom and Gomorrah went after strange flesh, gross immorality. I shared that word Sunday, that word gross immorality, ek pornea, from the root word pornea. Pornea is a word that we typically translate sexual immorality. This is what that word means in Greek. That word in Greek times meant any sexual activity in thought or physical deed in which one expressed and satisfied their sexual desire outside of action in the exclusive monogamous covenant of marriage between a biological male and a biological female. Now I give you all those provisos because our culture today makes it necessary to add all those addendums they're not added to the length. The simple word just means any kind of sexual activity and thought or deed outside of the confines of marriage with the understanding of marriage being between a man and a female, a man and a woman. So when it references this here, in spite of other things, it's saying they went after strange fest. It's refer referencing that specific act where the men of the city wanted the angels who were in the appearance of man. Now, Jude's purpose here is not to try to just call out one sin. The purpose is he's saying Sodom and Gomorrah is an example of sexual immorality, which includes heterosexual immorality. It includes homosexuality. And here's the key. And God brought judgment upon that sin. Now, before you go anything too big, let me give you this proviso to put some stuff about sin into context for us. Because anytime, especially, we come to a hot topic issue that is a hot topic in culture, you get all sorts of feelings, opinions, this and that and the other. We want to always speak with clarity on all sin. We want to also, knowing that those who are lost and enslaved to sin are not our enemies, 
They are people God calls us to go try and proclaim the truth to see rescued. They are in danger. We want to do it with kindness. But we also need to understand, this is a crazy statement. When you really go to the background of Sodom and Gomorrah, when Jesus is on the earth in the flesh, and he is going around the region of Galilee and even in his own hometown of Nazareth, it says in Nazareth, he was unable to perform many miracles because the people did not believe him. They did not possess faith. You're the carpenter's boy. What are you doing? And Jesus says this statement. He says, I tell you, on the final judgment day, all those citizens of Sodom and Gomorrah, which are the biblical representative of mass sexual immorality, they will have a better day on judgment day than all of you who have refused to believe my word that I am God. So let's be clear for us as church people. We have and don't hear me, I'm not loosening. We need to be clear. Sexual morality is, is wrong. But we can sometimes, in being stereotyped, sometimes we've earned the stereotype of we will breathe all sorts of condemnation on sexual immorality in the church and not want to deal with the fact that Jesus calls out our refusal to believe every last one of his words even greater. And so when Jesus says, my will for you is this, and we go, I don't want to believe your word, understand the weight of that. Now, the example here he's driving at is three examples. They don't believe the word of the Lord. They appear to be God's people, but they're not. They've crossed the boundaries established by God's authority, and they have engaged and promoted sexual morality, and God brings judgment. He deals with these people don't win in the end. God wins in the end. His ways win. He sets those examples up to say, and we looked at this Sunday, in the same way these men, these teachers who've come amongst your church, by dreaming, by claiming supernatural revelation, they defile the flesh. That's a reference to sexual morality and sensuality in a broad sense. They reject authority. They despise the authority of God, what he says goes. And then he adds this, they revile, they blaspheme angelic majesties. And so we impact as far as what those things are looked at Sunday, again, defile the flesh would be a broad word. It's, it's going to deal with, it's going to ignore God's pattern for men and women, for marriage, and for, for proper uh, sexual uh, expression and fulfillment. It's going to ignore God's nature. It's going to, you know, throw things out. So we said a mark of false teaching in the church is when we begin to reinterpret Scripture to loosen the standards of sexual morality and especially as that falls in line with the acceptance of what culture says is okay versus what God clearly says in, 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 in the overwhelming majority of the cases, the church globally throughout history has, has actually recognized correctly. Reject authority means to reject the authority of Jesus' ways, what he says goes, the doctrine he establishes, the standards he, he lays out. We said a mark of false teachers is a willingness to hold loosely to sound doctrine and biblical authority. There's a proclivity towards reinterpreting Scripture on the basis of cultural needs. And I mentioned this Sunday, if, if, if for many of us who culture would maybe, if, if culture's not going to view some of the categories that biblically we ought to view, culture's going to look at us a lot of times and go, here's the dividing line. Are you politically conservative or politically liberal? And they're going to look at a church like us and say, ah, oh, you're a bunch of political conservatives. That's how most of culture is going to operate. So coming from culture's perspective, if in the sexual morality, we would have a tendency to go, wow, look at how liberalism can really bring destruction. Understand this, rejecting the authority of God, that can be politically liberal or politically conservative. That can be sins that we would associate with liberalism. That can be sins that we would associate with a conservative legalism. Uh, if, how many of you are familiar with uh, the Duggars, 19 kids and counting, huge family? Some of you familiar. Uh, one of their daughters came out with a book recently where she talks about having to, and I think it's a great phrase, in this age of all the young people wanting to deconstruct their faith. She says, I didn't deconstruct my faith, but I did have to, have to detangle some things I was taught growing up that really I can't find anywhere in Scripture. Now, she was brought up in a very under a, uh, her family walked with a teacher that, by the name of Bill Gothard. I don't know how many of you have heard Bill Gothard. Some will have, some won't. 
Bill Gothard's an interesting guy. He's never been married and he's never had kids, but he claims, and actually, as I've listened to some of what she's unpacked, and I didn't even know this, but he would claim at his institutes to have divine revelations from God on how you should raise your kids so that they'll never wander from the Lord. He literally would go away at the beginning of the year and fast for 40 days and come back with words from God. Now, these words were not go out there and live loose and party and fancy free. These words were, if, ladies, if you show skin above your ankles, you're gonna invite the judgment of God on your life. If you have a drum beat in a car, you are inviting with that drum demons to come and wreck. This person died, and she was saying today that part of what made him so effective is he is a brilliant storyteller. So he would tell you a story about how this man died from cancer all the while he was running a business that he didn't know sold, sold alcohol. And so God judged him for the fact that he had a business that sold alcohol and boom, he's dead. And, it, and, it, and it's gripping. My whole point is there's nothing that we would look at from a cultural standpoint that Bill Gothard teaches that we would say is liberal. But nearly everything he teaches is devoid. In fact, it was interesting. Her husband said, as he became familiar he said, and I've talked to people in Bill's circles, when I speak of the Holy Spirit regenerating me at salvation, they're going, they have literally asked, what, is, what do you mean regenerate? It is a whole teaching of rules, do this to look a certain way, that is devoid of, you need Jesus Christ to save you and transform you before, before you've got any shot of being able to walk out and live in his holiness. So all point is to simply say, we've got to be aware because the context of this whole passage is making sure we don't fall in to false teaching. And I just want all of us to be clear, there is false teaching both directions of the moral landscape. And so we've got to make sure regardless of what's being taught, we stay cemented on what is clearly. So when you hear me say things like the Nephilim, well, was it angels? Was it not? And I tell you, here's the reality. You can make a case here. You can make a case here. But truth be told, the scripture does not give a single black and white. It is absolutely angels who came down or it's not angels who came down. Why do I say it like that to you? It's not to confuse you, but it's to be clear. There's some things like who are the Nephilim that God just doesn't give us a real clear, obvious, thus saith the Lord, the Nephilim are fill in the blank. And so if someone comes to you and says, no, it is angels, and you're a heretic if you don't believe me. Well, that person's off their rocker. Now, they may go, I believe it's angels, and I would like to think you're a heretic if you don't believe me, but I'll give you a little deal that, you know, I get before. You catch my point? We want to be cemented on what God's Word is exceedingly and abundantly clear on, and when it comes to issues of who God is, who we are, what we need in salvation, how we can be saved, what the Christian life looks like, all of that is abundantly and exceedingly spelled out, black and white, so easy a kindergartner can get it. But then he makes a statement. He says, revile angelic majesties, slander. And, and, the, and the interesting, the word there is slander glories. And then he gives this example because you're not going, well, what does it mean to slander glories? Well, he gives us an example. He says, but Michael, the archangel, when he disputed with the devil and argued about the body of Moses, did not dare pronounce a railing or blasphemous judgment. But he said, the Lord rebuke you. Now you may go, pastor, I've never heard that story in my Bible. Good, because it's not in there. <laughs> if you know, I've never heard that story. I can't find it in my Bible. That's good. You've read your Bible enough. It's not in there. That comes from an apocryphal work called the Assumption of Moses, we think, because there's even a little bit of debate on that. You go, well, well what's the point? Well, understand, remember in the, Old, in the Old Testament, God takes Moses up on the mountain at the end of his life. He doesn't let Moses go in the promised land, but he takes him up on Mount Nebo and he lets Moses see the whole promised land. And then it says that Moses died and God took his body and buried it. Only God knows where the body of Moses is buried. No human being. So this is obviously from an apocryphal source. Now, is it true? Is it not true? Is, is it true and that's why Jude's using it? Or is it just a common story that Jude knew his, his readers would be familiar with so he pulls it? Could be either. We don't know. If I say, see you next week, same bat time, same bat channel, I got news for you. I'm not advocating that the 1966 Batman series is the inspired word of God. It's not. God's not that campy. 
but it may serve to be a good example to help you know something I'm saying. So is it, is it, it happened, it not happened? Don't know, but here's what he says. It says that here's Satan and here's Michael, the archangel, the, the, the top category of angels. They're having a disagreement over the body of Moses and that Michael did not pronounce a, a blasphemous judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke you, the Lord deal with you. Now, the question you got to ask there is, who is he saying that to? Is Michael not saying a blasphemous judgment against Satan? Or, and that's probably the way most of us would read it in English, but technically in, in, in the original language, you could take it as, is Michael saying, I'm not going to offer a slanderous judgment on Moses? Because the story that's being quoted is Satan showing up going, no, 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 God can't take Moses' body. Moses murdered a man in Egypt. He's mine. And obviously, God says, no, he's mine. And God in the Old Testament often uses his angels as his messengers and the ones doing his, his, his work in, in the physical world. And so there's this, so is Michael saying, I'm not going to blaspheme against Satan? Or is Michael saying, I'm not, I'm not the judge. I can't make that determination of Moses, but the Lord has and can and does. The Lord rebuke you. Now, you can make a good case either way. You can make a case, because here's the deal. If you say over here, the most natural reading is to say, don't rebuke, Michael didn't rebuke, that uh, Michael didn't blaspheme, slander Satan. The weird thing about that is, why, is why, are, why are we concerned about slandering demons? Isn't kind of the nature of being a demon is you're a slanderer? Like, how can you slander a demon? Doesn't make a lot of logical sense, but you can say, ah, I've got divine revelation of God. You don't have any issue. I'm the one to try. I'm the one who's saying who's judged and who's not judged. And I'm claiming to have, have a revelation of God about who's right and who's not that. Look, I can look at the fruit of your life and I can make a, a fairly good guess or I can have it. But, but the truth be told, the only one who actually knows if your name's written in the book of life is the one who has access to the book of life. That makes a little bit more sense. At the same time, this you got to do a little more digging to get to. The more simple reading is he's not going to slander and blaspheme demons. And we do know there is a history in the church and, that, and even, in, even into modern times of various parts of the church claiming an authority and a, a knowledge of the unseen realm and authority over angels, a certain kind of authority over demons that you just don't ever see unfolded and taught in the pages of Scripture. And I, I have been around uh, some of those in college and watched how they have really damaged the faith of legitimate believers at times. So as I told you Sunday, I think walking through dealing with what's there, knowing that Second Peter is going to reference a very similar thing, it seems like the reference here is not so much to Michael is, is refusing to make a judgment call on whether Moses is righteous or not. Michael is basically saying, look, I'm not going to claim, I'm not going to give a reviling judgment against you, Satan. Instead, the Lord rebuke you. The Lord deal with you. Which is, even if you want to say, well, as a believer, has God given us the authority to cast out a demon? Jesus says he does, but how are we to go about dealing with that demon? It's prayerfully in submission to the Holy Spirit, and it's very clear it's cast out in Jesus' name, not our name. Of course, if you've read the book of Acts, you remember the story where a bunch of guys saw the apostles cast out demons and they thought it'd be cool to go cast out a demon. And they went in there and they said, hey, we're here to cast you out. And they said, we know who Jesus is. We've heard occasionally of Paul. We got no clue who you are. And then the demon, the possessed man beats the snot out of them, rips all their clothes off. And these four guys have to run through streaking like a jaybird, embarrassed for their life because they, they clearly um, barked down a tree that they, that they couldn't. And I told you Sunday, we see this when, when we claim a certain kind of authority over knowledge. There is a very famous clip of a former spiritual, advi a spiritual advisor, a former president, who is quite literally claiming divine knowledge that that president was going to win re-election by the armies of God as, as, they, uh, as they literally ordered angels out of South America and Africa to come and turn the tide in the election. That is a bunch of hokey, non-biblical nonsense that there's no grounding for in Scripture. But there are, but they pastor a massive church. And there's a lot of people bought into that. So it may seem kind of strange if you've never had any interaction with some of that. If you've, but understand, there's 
there's large. Some of the crazy videos I have on YouTube are of theology like this, that when I was in college, I watched shipwreck several of my friends' faith. So it's there. It's out there, even if it's not as apparent. We may see the other two, the, uh, the sexual morality and the authority being, being taken there. Now, we got just a couple minutes left, so let me hit these last ones. He says, woe to them, they've gone the way of Cain. What do we mean by the way of Cain? The background of the way of Cain, of course, would be Genesis chapter 4. Cain and Abel, two brothers, they come bring their sacrifices. Uh, Abel's sacrifice of his first fruit, uh, of his first fruit sacrifice of, of blood of the lamb. God finds pleasing to his sight. Cain's offering, God does not. Cain gets angry. He's filled with bitterness and jealousy. God even confronts him. And he even tells him, sin crouches at the door of your heart. And then Cain proceeds to go and premeditated, cold-blooded murder his brother. So the question is, what is the way of Cain? Is the way of Cain, if these people walk in the way of Cain, are they walking around murdering everybody? Likely not, because the church has fully embraced them and feels safe around them. And typically, you don't just fully embrace and feel safe around serial killers. And in a church context like that, it'd be pretty noticeable if someone was running around in your church, killing people in your church. So what do we mean by the way of Cain? Well, you come to one to two things, and I mentioned the first Sunday, which I think is, which is very clear. Cain is not just, Cain's specific action of sin was murder, but what, what is Cain's actual action? Cain is told the way of God, and Cain deliberately rejects the revealed way of God. So what is he saying? The way of Cain, these people know what is true, but by an act of their own will, they reject what is true. They walk in the way of Cain. The second aspect is there is a tradition in Jewish thought that Cain, after he murdered and God sent him out into the world, that Cain went and taught his path of sin to others. So that the other aspect there would be Cain not only just chose what was wrong, but he, he is a teacher. So these people didn't just choose, but they taught. Maybe a little bit of a stretch if we're being honest, and it's not needed because the next thing he says is they have rushed headlong into the air of Balaam. Now, Balaam is that prophet that's there in Moab as the people of God for the second time. God's bringing them out of the wilderness 40 years later after where well, we started this passage. He's bringing them up. The king of Moab says, hey, Balaam, I want you to prophesy against the people of God. So so he gets on the donkey to go, right? And this is the famous story where Balaam's riding the donkey, the donkey throws him off, gets back, whips the donkey, gets back on, donkey throws him off, gets back on the donkey, whips the donkey, gets back on. And the third time the donkey throws him off and he's just hacked at the donkey and it says that God opened the mouth of the donkey and what has to be one of the most bizarre fly on the wall, supernatural miracles in scripture I'm very positive, Balaam, in case you're asking this question, I'm very positive the donkey did not sound like Eddie Murphy. Uh, pretty confident that's not the case. But the donkey spoke and the donkey told him, he said, look, you can't see it, but right there on the road, I can see the angel and he's got the sword. And if I carry you through, he's cutting your head off because you've gone against the people of God. And so Balaam tells the king of Moab, hey, sorry, can't do it. These are God's people. Now, if you stop there and you kind of read what's said, it's like, oh, okay, Balaam. Had a little rough spot, but you come out. Then you fast forward. Because you fast forward and you find that the people of God, it says, it's called the sin of Peor, that they, they began, they saw how pretty the local women were. They began to go after them. They, they, they engaged in sexual morality and God began to strike them down. Sent fiery serpents amongst them, began to strike them down. What you find out, let me, let me give you the references too, so you know I'm not just making this up. Numbers 22 and 24 is Balaam refusing to curse Israel for money. You find out in Deuteronomy 23 that Balaam was hired to curse Israel. You find out in Numbers 31, so Deuteronomy, uh, Numbers 22 and 24, Balaam refuses to curse Israel. Deuteronomy 23, you see Balaam's hired to curse Israel. Numbers 31, you find out that it was Balaam who told the king, go send your pretty ladies down there. They'll go after them and God will deal with them. I can't curse them for you, but I can tell you how you can get them to bring God's judgment on their own life. 
all for personal profit and greed. That's the motive behind Balaam. So here we see if they walk in the way of Balaam, it means they lead and they entice people to walk outside of God's truth and they do it for their own personal pleasure and profit. And that could be financial. Makes you think of some of the crazy uh, televangelists that flew out of the 80s and, and some of whom still go today who've made an entire ministry sucking people dry financially, not for the kingdom of heaven, but for their own private jetliners. Because, and to quote one of them, I won't ride on a plane filled with sinners. You're a lot like your Savior who ate dinner with a lot of sinners. So this is the era of Balaam, and that's where you find it. And then the parish and the rebellion of Korah, that's a reference to Numbers 16 and Numbers 26. Korah was a Levite who was dissatisfied that out of the Levites, God had chosen Aaron's family to be the high priest family. He didn't like Moses and Aaron's leadership, and he found some others who were disgruntled, and they formed a coup and started a rebellion. And when they got exposed, God opened up a hole in the ground, and the earth sucked them all down, and they, they, they had perished which tells you and seems to imply, and it's how we know that these people who've come into the church weren't just anybody. These were people who were claiming to have a kind of authority to teach God's people and to lead God's people. That's why you heard me put the application Sunday. Listen, we live in a challenging day and age because there's a lot of people who claim to be teachers of God. There's a lot of people who write books. You can get published easier than ever. You can have your own blog. You can forget all that. You can have your own podcast. You can do your own YouTube channel. What's changed today is you don't just have access to these kind of things in print, but you have access to see people, to to hear people, to hear the tone of their voice, the charisma of how they talk, the stories and the examples that they use. There are people who claim to be leaders in God's church today, and that's, we, that's there from, from Korah, but they're leading people to walk in rebellion from, from God's authority. But also, I think there's an instance in there, from the authority that God has, God has established an authority structure in His church. You're to call God-fearing men to be pastors who are to prayerfully lead and shepherd and serve the church according to the Word of God. And so between the Word of God informing and instructing the leaders of God's people and the people of God walking uh, in submission to God at the, at the proper preaching of his word from the shepherds in God's house, there is meant to be a protection there. But you've got leaders who come in and say, oh no, what your pastor said, let me tell you what your pastor didn't tell you. In fact, sometimes I give you some background on some stuff and I go, man, that was probably probably didn't have to do that. That probably added a couple more minutes to the sermon, but I do it because I catch this today. I catch podcasts or Instagram channels or, or things where two people are talking about it and they'll say, they'll bring up something like Genesis 6 and, and the Nephilim. Is, is it important that, you, that we solve that mystery to knowing God and walking? No, it's not. Is it interesting? Sure. But there's channels that go, let me tell you what your pastor never told you. And they'll bring up some, and I'll be honest, I don't know. I don't know that I've ever heard a pastor cover the Nephilim. I guess they did because my pastor preached verse by verse growing up, and I know he preached through the whole book of Genesis over five years, but I don't remember it. But they'll use that as a starting point to then go down and start offering their conspiracy theories on it and take you down different. Like, oh man, this is crazy. This is the Bible I never knew and was taught in church. And not realizing all of a sudden I've opened myself up to danger and what's said there. This is the background of Korah. Now, last thing. It says in verse 14 about these men that Enoch in the seventh generation from Adam prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord came with many thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment upon all and to convict all the ungodly of all their ungodly deeds, which they have done in an ungodly way, and of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. Now, simply put, if you do a background look at Enoch, you're going to find one place in Scripture primarily. Back in Genesis, in the list of the generations, you're going to see Enoch. It's going to tell you how long he lived, and it's going to make this statement, and he walked with God, and then he was no more. The implication not being that he died, but that he walked with God, he was living, and then he just disappeared from this realm. God took him home. God took him up. In fact, if you really want to go down, there's two men in the history of the world that have never experienced physical death, Enoch 
and Elijah. Some would speculate that the two witnesses at the end of times are Enoch and Elijah because everybody's got to die once. I guess unless you're in the rapture and, you, and you're not, you know, logic stuff, but that's a different time. Now you say, so where is this Enoch prophesied? Well, it comes from another apocryphal letter, First Enoch. Now we've talked about that before. You've got our 66 books of the, of the, of the scriptures, 38 Old Testament, 20, uh, sorry, 39 Old Testament, 27 New Testament, that we know to be the God-breathed, without error, word of God, profitable for all things. We also know there's other writings from both the Old Testament and New Testament times. We call those the apocryphal writings. First Enoch's an Old Testament apocryphal writing, meaning it's an apocryphal writing from the time of the Old Testament. It claims to be written by Enoch, but everybody knew it wasn't written by Enoch because there's no way it could have been. So the question then becomes, well, Jude quotes from apocryphal writers. Does that mean that the apocrypha is God's word? Let me give you the real simple answer here. No. It's no more God's word than when Paul, writing to Titus, quotes Cretan poets. It's no more God's word than when Paul stands on Mars Hill and preaches a sermon in Acts 17 and quotes other Greek philosophers. Listen, if all truth, anything that's true is true because God's true. Two plus two equals four is not in the Bible, but it's true. And I might use it in a sermon sometime. Why? Because all truth is God's truth. Is he advocating the apocryphal books or scripture? No. But he has found something in an apocryphal book that he knows is true and can serve as an example that he's trying to make to this church, which he is calling to recognize the threat they are facing and to contend for the one true faith. So this is the background behind what he's doing. Now, let me give you this last word as we close. And we'll, we'll actually see this more Sunday and how we unpack what we're to do with all this. Many have said the reason Jude is the most neglective of the New Testament books is because when you study it and you walk through what he is saying, it causes you to have to address topics that are uncomfortable in society today. And I acknowledge that full well. And Jude, obviously, if you've noticed, every one of those examples, it is connected to, and God judged, and God judged, and God destroyed, and God judged, and God judged. There is a reason for that. It's a reason to tell those believers, hey, don't listen to that. That doesn't honor the Lord. The Lord's actually going to deal with that. Don't give in. Hey, those of you who are scared by it, who, who don't even know where to start, hey, step up and contend because, and don't, 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 uh, uh, don't, don't fall in, but don't give up. God wins. He's going to deal with this. And these words that are really harsh, he's directing them specifically to those who are so sold over to, the, to, to rejecting God's authority, to promoting sexual morality, to reviling angelic majesties, to those who are so sold over to them that they are teachers of those things. Because he's going to tell us Sunday, you're going to have some people amongst you who hear that and are struggling with doubt. Have mercy on them. You're going to have some who are falling into it and you go and rescue, snatch them, pull them out. And you do it with a, with a, a reverent awe of God that understands you're not above getting sucked in. So we want to be clear those are broad categories, rejecting the authority of God, reviling angelic majesties, defiling the flesh, sexual morality. There's a lot of different sins that those cover. Not one of us in this room is immune from falling prey to a teaching that says, you want your Jesus and your sin too? Here's a teaching. Here's some Bible verses that'll give it to you. By the way, just remember, you can find someone to teach you to, to use the Bible to justify whatever you want. Satan uses the Bible to tempt Jesus. The issue is not what can you use the Bible to justify. The issue is what did God say in the word? But I also want to be clear. You may know people who are struggling. 
with doubt, who are, who are struggling with active temptation in any of these sins, who are struggling with Instagram, what I, again, my, my term, Instagram theologians, goes for any, any access to false truth, who are doubting, who are wrestling, who are struggling. And I want to be unbelievably clear as pastor, and I want us to be unbelievably clear as a church. We will stand and speak clearly what God says, and we will pour out our lives to display mercy and kindness to those who are struggling and not an advocate where we go, that's right, that's sin, and you get out of here if you struggle with it. If you're struggling with it and you're willing to show up and go, I want Jesus, but I'm confused, I would love to give my life to walk with you. And that better be our heart as a church. We will not affirm what is sinful, but we will walk and seek to rescue and show mercy and see believers who are doubting brought back and restored to the fold to see those who are lost. And, and by the way, if they're lost, have no other reason to do anything than what they're doing. To hear of the precious love of Christ who came to seek and save those who are lost, that they might hear of the gospel and that the gospel might open their eyes, that everything this world says will satisfy you, which is rooted in absolute self-centeredness and the satisfaction of whatever desire you feel and instinct, your impulse you want to follow that day, it will never satisfy you. It will only breed a cancer that will forever kill your soul until it's too late but your creator, he's gonna call, he's gonna call you a sinner the same as he's called all of us. And he took on your sin on that cross that he might reconcile you to a right relationship with God. Where yes, in this world, you're gonna be tempted by some things that you will have to die to your flesh daily, but he'll give you the grace to do it where you will know the joy and the peace and the mercy and the love of God to be fulfilled and whole. We call that eternal life. We start experiencing it in this life, and we will know it in full when he returns and brings the new heaven and the new earth. And that's the good news. So we will speak clearly, and Jude speaks clearly to one of the great dangers in our day, that not all who claim to be Christians and teach the word really are Christians and really teach his word. But it also calls us and reminds us that we are called, not part of contending is not just exposing what's wrong, but it is being active on the battlefield to go seek and save those to what is right and good. So let me pray. That's time. Love you, church family. We will... Um, See you Sunday as we finish the book of Jude. We'll also remind you Sunday night in this room, 6.30, we are going to have a church-wide prayer meeting to just seek and pray and beseech the Lord for open doors next week during the Holy Week to be able uh, to uh, share the gospel and see people saved, um, to see people rescued out of the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of light. So let me pray. Jesus, thank you for the salvation you bring. Thank you for the clarity of your word. God, thank you that you are so much bigger. There's so much more. If any one of us thinks, ah, we've solved every mystery in scripture, then that, we, we might've stepped too far on that one. But God, thank you even when there seems to be some aspects like the Nephilim. We may not understand every little detail that's there, but, but we clearly understand the point. And even in Genesis 6, you bring a righteous destruction for sin, but you rescue a family through whom the human race will be restarted, through whom ultimately a Savior would come, because, God, your heart, you made us out of love, you desire to redeem us driven by love, you want to reconcile us to you that we would live in a loving, fulfilling relationship with you where we know and experience your love and we are transformed and love you in return, not because you need us, you need nothing. Not because it's all about us, it's not about us, it's all about you, your glory. 
but because in your sheer goodness, you want us. And so, Father, make us a people who know whose we are and who we are, who are hungry to know everything about the one true faith that reconciles us to you, who are active to contend in a world that is filled with so many dangers to try to sidetrack people that ultimately come from the heart of the enemy who's the father of lies, who just wants to steal, kill, and destroy. Jesus, you are good. For my brothers and sisters and I in this room, Father, may we yield, Holy Spirit, to your good work in our lives. Mold us, shape us. Make us look like you and shine brilliantly through us in this world. It's in your name we pray, Jesus. Amen.